and then we'll take communion together as one. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it apart. And he gave it to each one and said, take and eat, for this is my body. And then he took the cup and he passed it around and gave it to each one and said, drink, for this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. this time. If you're a kiddo, you are dismissed. If you're in youth groups, stay with your parents. All right. Um, and if you don't have kids or anything else, stick around because there's a really cute preacher coming up. Okay, here's a question. Do you believe you have a personal responsibility to share your faith? Surveys have shown that the overwhelming majority of you would answer yes. Okay, so what about this question? Have you shared your faith with anyone in the last six months? Surveys have shown that a majority of you would answer this question? No. I guess it's just not as easy as it seems, or at least as easy as we'd like it to be. Well, here's another question. How many times have you personally invited an unchurched person to church? Now this seems simple, right? And yet surveys tell us that almost half of you would answer zero. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we don't, right? Like, maybe it still feels a little awkward and uncomfortable. Or maybe we're just unsure how effective it is. Or we just expect to hear them say, well, no. Okay, so listen to this. When people are asked why they came to church in the first place, the vast majority of them say, I began attending because someone invited me. It wasn't the music or the pastor. It wasn't the childcare, the youth program, or the building. Although these are all great things, important and valuable things, the main thing that got most of you up and through that door the first time wasn't any of these. It was an invitation. Christmas will be here soon, and it's the perfect time to share with others what your faith is all about. And it can all start with one more simple question. Want to come to church on Sunday? Let's change the stats, and let God change hearts and lives this Christmas. And let's start with something simple. An invitation.
Good morning, Christ Community Church. Well, a couple things. Speaking of invitations, you know, it is uh, a great time to invite an unchurched person here. We start a mini-series next week, The Gospel According to Isaiah, the prophecies about Jesus Christ in Isaiah for a couple weeks leading up to Christmas. We have our children's um, Christmas program coming up, thanks to Jenny Hill. And and then uh, after that, we have our Christmas Eve service, which I need to just remind you guys of something. Some of you occasionally come on our Saturday night service. That weekend, Saturday runs, falls on Christmas Day. So we won't have any service, obviously, that day. Just be with your families. But we will have regular service December 26th at 1030, just so you know. Um, And so then... Dad's got a freebie to preach whatever he wants uh, the first of the year, and then we'll start a new series in January. Uh, you have, please, if you, there's a book or a question that you would like tackled, let me know, because once Christmas Eve service is over, I will start planning what that, the next year's sermon series will be. So if there's a book in there or a sermon series you, you'd like to hear, let me know, and Dad and I will, will hash it out. Speaking of series... We finish today the once and for all, uh, the doctrine series, the basics of the Christian faith. And this is the sermon where the overwhelming majority of you will get mad at me. Um, Now I'm going to ask a couple things. One, it is a sin to kill the preacher. Um, Two, it's also very sinful to throw anything at the preacher. Um, It's borderline sinful to heckle the preacher. So... um, just stick, stick with me, will you? Okay. Um, because we're going to talk about the last days, the final things, Jesus' return, all that kind of stuff. And, and if there's one thing that for some reason Christians get so passionate about, and they will divide and argue really quickly over, it is this stuff. And people get so just jived on it, man. I mean, I tell you, like, there are so many preachers out there, I won't name them by name, but they've got TV shows and, and really popular podcasts and YouTube channels, and all they talk about is this stuff. That's all they talk about. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really weird. And every once in a while, one of these guys will do this. I know when Jesus will return. It'll be on this day. A number of preachers have done that over the years. They've all been wrong. You know, Jesus had this little saying, you know, about when they asked him about when this stuff would happen, and he says, no one knows. Only the Father knows. And people guess anyway. I don't know why. About 10 or 12 years ago, I guess it was, one of these guys in California said, the rapture will happen on Saturday evening. I forget what time, but he had a time. He said, here is when it's going to happen. Now, during that time, I was preaching at a church that I helped plant called Revolution. And I I, I usually preached every Sunday night. I couldn't preach that Sunday night because I was also working for a Christian law firm. No, that's not a contradiction in terms. That's not an oxymoron. There are Christian lawyers, like five of them. Um, But I was working there, and I had a big event in Washington, D.C. that I had uh, to be at. So I was gone that weekend. But, of course, this guy screaming on the radio that the rapture is going to happen. So, me being me, I snuck into the building on Friday morning before I took off. And, Chris, if you've got that picture, I put this on the stage. <laughs> That's my favorite shirt and my favorite pair of jeans. I left a little note saying, sorry, you guys were left behind. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, but, man, people get so divided over this stuff. And, and, and so many Christians get weirded out because they think that whatever they learned as a child about this stuff, that's the only way to view it. But, in fact, Christianity is actually divided among four different camps. There are four different ways that Christians over the years have kind of broken down the end times. In fact, I brought this big book up here because you can see this is a parallel commentary on all four views of the book of Revelation where you can go through. And so it, it all kind of comes down to this. It comes down to the millennium in Revelation 20 and the place of Israel. That's where the, all, the whole debate kind of comes down with. Now, let me say this. I don't know 
how many of you uh, regularly watch the news. I do. Uh, my wife refuses to uh, because it just bums her out. Uh, she doesn't like to begin her day that, that way. Uh, she does not want to hear about another COVID variant um, and all that other kind of stuff. Um, if they have another lockdown, pray for me because it'll be like the shining in my house, except I won't be the Jack Nicholson character. <laughs> I won't be the one running around with an axe. It'll be my wife going, I need people. Um, she, she, went, she was bouncing off the walls. You know, she doesn't, doesn't like to do that. But if you watch the news, you know, we live in a time where people are, let's just say it, rude. Rude and intolerant. And when I say tolerant, intolerant, I mean like tolerance in the classical sense. Once upon a time, what tolerance meant was, you disagree with me, I disagree with you, but we can just agree to disagree and be friends and not argue and fuss about it. That's true tolerance. Now, if our society, our culture is ever going to learn to be civil again, it's not going to come from Hollywood and it's not going to come from Washington, D.C., It's going to have to start with the church, with the people of God, being courteous. And I I know how hard that can be. Just last night, I was coming home from church. Uh, Somebody was trying to get out, so I stopped to let somebody out, and they just went by. I was like, where's the this? You know, I just want this. Thanks, you know. They just, um, but if that's going to happen, it's going to have to start with us. And it's going to start with us even on stuff like this that you may be passionate about, just agreeing to disagree and love each other anyway. Right? Good, because you're about to disagree with me. Um, But I just got your word. So, here we go. So, here's where the debate goes. We go to Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through 7. And this is one of the areas where people just fuss a lot about. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until a thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. Excuse me. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And when a thousand years have come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Now, many of you read that and say, well, that's it. You know, it's straightforward. And, and God bless you, you know, for trying to read your Bible literally. That's, that's, that's just great. But believe it or not, as I said, there are four different ways people have traditionally read this and other texts that kind of talk about end times. There is historic premillennialism. There is dispensational premillennialism premillennialism, if I can talk. There is amillennialism, and there is postmillennialism. Four different views. The most popular is definitely premillennial dispensationalism, and there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, it's because in the study notes of the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the most popular Bible in the early 20th century, and it also, it had study notes that were dispensational. And it got into the hands of a young preacher by the name of Billy Graham, who talked a lot about it. And then in the 90s, how many of you remember this? There was a series of best-selling novels. And I'm talking like Harry Potter, Hunger Games-level selling novels called the Left Behind series. There were those novels. There was even the movies. The first one with Kirk Cameron. The second one with, some, for some reason, Nicolas Cage. But the remake had Nicolas Cage in it. Um, Don't ask me why. But, you know, they basically break down, you know, time into these dispensations, these ages. There's seven of them, they say. And I've got them outlined there. I'm not going to go through all of them. we got too much to talk about. And they also teach that there's this thing called the rapture. And many of them believe that this thing called the rapture will be a secret where 
Christians are suddenly taken up with Jesus to heaven. They just disappear off the face of the earth. And this will happen right before the great tribulation or the persecution of the church. Sound familiar? You all know this, right? Okay. Okay. So that is easily the most popular way of of looking at that. They also, many dispensationalists hold, that there is a special place for Israel. Some even going so far, not all, but some going so far as to say Israel will be saved by adhering to the Old Testament law. They don't need Jesus. That's what some of those teach. This is the most popular way of viewing the end times. Now, you may not know it, but the Christian faith is roughly 2,000 years old. It'll be 2,000 years old in about 10 years. This view of the end times is 200 years old. Does that surprise you? You cannot find a single church leader in the early church, the Middle Ages, so forth. Martin Luther didn't hold this. John Calvin didn't hold this. Nobody held this view until the 1830s. It was created by a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby. You can look it up. John Nelson Darby, who, by the way, was a lawyer. Yeah, he's a lawyer. We screw up a lot of things. Um, John Nelson Darby came up with this. He was not a trained theologian. He was not trained in Greek or Hebrew or church history and that kind of stuff. He just thought that reading Revelation symbolically just didn't make good English sense. And so he went down and he copied out all these notes on Daniel and the book of Revelation and so forth, and he published them. They eventually got into the hands of a Texas millionaire, and he published them. And then he put them in the Schofield Reference Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. This is historically verifiable. Don't take it out on me. I didn't make it up. This is history, folks. The term rapture is not found in church history any time before 1830. Not once. It's not there. Nobody believed in the rapture before John Nelson Darby came along. And according to some church historians, Darby himself did not come up with it. He had switched from the Church of England to a group called the Plymouth Brethren. And in the church that he was at, a young girl, teenage girl, had a dream in which Jesus appeared secretly to Christians, and they all went up, and he got it from her. Does that surprise you? This is a brand new kid on the block. Now, just because it's new does not in and of itself mean it's wrong. However, in a faith once and for all delivered to believers 2,000 years ago, that should at least give you pause. When you go back and you look at the guys that were trained by, if we're right that John, the apostle, wrote the book of Revelation, John trained a couple of guys named Clement and others, and we have their writings, and they make no reference to this at all. In their writings, they say, Jesus will return, judge, reign, end of story. Does that surprise you? So, speaking of new, and I'll get back to all this in a minute, but speaking of of new, there's also post-millennialism. Now, this is something you probably have not encountered much because even though it was the most popular way to read the Bible in the 17th and 18th century, by the time World War I had ended, it went, see, bye-bye. Because here's what postmillennialists believe, and there are very few around today. There are a few hardcore Calvinists that are postmillennialists. But postmillennialism says that this thousand-year reign is to be taken literally, it's a thousand years in which the church will become so influential that basically the entire world will be converted to Christianity, it'll be near paradise on earth, and then Jesus will return. Guys like Alexander Campbell held that position. Guys like Jonathan Edwards held that position. 
But once the mustard gas started to like flow through the trenches of Europe and they saw people coming home that were horribly disfigured from mustard gas and everything else, people began to say, eh, maybe we're being a little bit too optimistic. And so post-millennialism basically went away. Very few scholars hold this view today. By the way, going back to dispensationalism, I should let you know. Um, this whole view of dispensations and an antichrist, by the way, it doesn't say antichrist in the Bible. It says antichrists, uh, plural. Um, his whole view of antichrist, all that kind of stuff, the, the left behind stuff, all that kind of stuff, very few biblical scholars believe in it. None of my seminary professors did, not a one. Um, there, outside of Dallas Theological Seminary and John MacArthur Seminary, it's hard to find a scholar who, who believes in this. And so just keep that in mind. If that's, again, I believe in tolerance within the church. The only thing we really have to agree on is the Bible's the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Okay. So if you want to hold to that, you're like, yeah, I like my Left Behind novels. Great. My Greek professor said that the novels were great science fiction and really bad theology. But if that's the way you want to go, God bless you. God keep you. That's fine. Don't have a problem with that. If you want to be a post-millennialist, okay. I'm never going to be one. Because I, do, you know, I define optim, an optimist as somebody who doesn't understand the situation. You know, I don't get it. I think things are probably going to get worse unless the church gets its act together and the Spirit blesses it. If you want to know what the earliest, the early church held, the two views, and there were only two views in the early church. You want to go back to the first, the second century, third century, fourth century, there were only two views. We call those views historic premillennialism and amillennialism. All right, what's, what's the difference? All right, I will go ahead and lay my cards out on the table. I am what's called an amillennialist. Um, this is the position held by the vast majority of biblical scholars, by the way. And here's why. When it sees something like the thousand years in Revelation 20, it sees that as a symbol of a very long time. Now, why do we see it that way? Because when we look at Jewish writings from the time, guess what? They often used a thousand years to mean a really long time, not a literal thousand years. And here's the difference. Here's what you need to keep in mind. If you want to really understand the book of Revelation, as the early church understood it, as most scholars understand it, etc., you have to understand its genre. Every writing has a genre. And if you don't know the genre, you're not going to understand the writing. So, for example, if you hand me a book, knowing that I like scary movies and all that kind of stuff, and you hand me a book and say, this is the scariest thing I've ever read, and it's a Harlequin romance, I'm going to be confused. Right? If you tell a kid that, you know, you're going to give him a fairy tale and you give him a Sherlock Holmes book, he's going to be confused. Because you can't understand a writing unless you understand its genre. The book of Revelation was in what we call apocalyptic texts. And it may surprise you that there were many outside of the Bible. There are a lot of Jewish apocalypses. A lot of them. They were, John was not the only one writing this way. A lot of Jews were writing that way. And yes, John was Jewish. Grew up in Israel. And... So you have to understand the genre, and the genre basically is this. Apocalyptic, the book of Revelation, is basically this. Have you ever wanted to convey something to someone, but words just couldn't do it? Right? You have a feeling or something, and you just cannot get it across unless you stretch language or unless you use symbols. Right? Someone, a loved one dies. We say something like, it just crashed upon me. You don't mean that literally. You mean that symbolically, but we get what you mean. And so that's what the book of Revelation is. Now again, I'm not going to argue with you if you have, you've got a different view, that's okay. You can be wrong. 
That's hard. But if you understand Revelation from the genre, if you understand the symbols, it's actually not a very difficult book to understand. And it's really pretty simple. The, the whole message of the book of Revelation is this. Church, trouble's coming. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be jailed. You're going to be tortured. You're going to die. But I'm going to peel back the curtain and show you God's still on his throne. And he has a plan, and it's going to be okay. That's the entire message of the book of Revelation. Or as my professor Randy Harris used to say, he used to say that whenever he'd go, he'd get called in for a speaking gig, some church somewhere. And he'd meet with the, you know, the congregation and the elders and stuff. And eventually, somebody in the church would raise their hand and say, what do you think of the millennium? Or where do you think the end? I ask him something about the book of Revelation. And he always knew it was a trap, because if they disagreed with him, they were just going to shut down and not listen to a thing he said. Because for some reason, again, for some Christians, this is the most important thing. Okay, so Randy would respond this way, and this is basically what I do when people come up in the street or coffee shop or, or send me a message about the book of Revelation. So you want to know what the book of Revelation is about? Here it is. One, I can do it, just three lines. One, God's team wins. Two, choose which team to belong to. Three, don't be stupid. That's it. That's it. And so... You see, you've got to understand, once you understand the symbolism, it really, the book really comes alive. For example, there was an emperor, that means king, king of the Roman Empire, named Nero. Nero started off as a very well-regarded ruler. People thought he was smart. People thought he was good. But he eventually went crazy, probably from a disease. Nero had plans to rebuild Rome. But just like today when the government comes in and says, hey, we're going to bring you a new highway, and people are great. Yeah, it's going through your backyard. And like, whoa. Nero said, I want to rebuild Rome. And the people who owned a lot of the buildings said, no, you're not tearing down my building. But then Rome caught fire. Now remember, there are no fire trucks. You know how you put out a fire back then? <laughs> that, that's all you could do. Run to the river, grab a bucket, do your best. So, obviously, Rome just nearly burnt to the ground. After they'd put out the fire, after the fires had died out, guess who the Romans blamed? It's Nero. He wanted a new Rome, and this is how he got it. And remember that Caesars had been murdered in the past, and so Nero was sitting there thinking, uh-oh, i got to find somebody to blame for this and get them off my back. He said, I know who it was. Christians. And so Nero started the first persecution of the church. Now, I know young people are here. I'll try not to get too gory. But what Nero did was pretty brutal. For example, he had a garden behind his house. And he would have garden parties out there at night where he and the rich folks in Rome would sit there and drink wine and eat. He used Christians as torches why they were alive. For fun, when he'd get drunk at these parties, he'd drag in Christians, have them bound up. He'd put on a lion skin or a bear skin and pretend to be a beast and bite chunks out of them for fun. Well, it probably wouldn't surprise you that early church began to refer to Nero as the beast. The beast. And then later on, when another Caesar comes along, this Caesar doesn't like Christians either. He wants to be worshipped as the one and only God of the Roman Empire. His name was Domitian. So Domitian came up with a plan about the time the book of Revelation was written. Here is Domitian's plan. If you went to the marketplace and every city had an area where you could do business, the marketplace, you could not do business anywhere else. You had to do business there because the tax man wanted to make sure you were paying your taxes. So you had the little marketplace in every city. To get into this marketplace, Caesar, Domitian said, here's what you have to do. You have to walk up to a little altar, take some incense, 
offer it in worship of Caesar, then you must say, Caesar is Lord. And if you do that, you will get a little mark on your hand and your forehead so that you can enter the marketplace. And of course, Christians called this the mark of the beast. You see what I mean? When you understand the history and everything, it, that's where it's coming from. That's where it's coming from. So this was called amillennialism, that you have to understand the symbolism in order to understand the book as a whole. And remember this, how does the book begin and end? These things must happen soon. Do you know what soon in Greek is? Soon. And I hear this all the time. Yeah, but to God, uh, you know, a thousand years is like a day. Yeah, but he's not, it's not written to God, it's written to us. And to us, a day is a day. And soon is soon. And so you have to keep that in context. That's the position I hold. Very few of you probably hold that position. So be it. The other one is this. The other one that was really popular in the early church is what's called historic premillennialism. Now, what this just basically boils down to is this. Jesus returns. He reigns on earth for a thousand years, but he does not rid the world of sin. He does not commence the final judgment yet. He reigns as king for a thousand years in order especially to give Israel a chance to repent. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is let out of a pit, you know, and he runs wild for a second until Jesus says, I've had enough of you. And then there's final judgment. That's called historic premillennialism. If you go back and read the early church fathers from the first 400 years of the church, amillennialism and historic premillennialism were the only ways the book of Revelation was read. Only way. That's the only views held about end times. So, if you become or you are a historic premillennialism and you say a thousand years means a thousand years, and I'm going to take it like that and so forth, God bless you and keep you. You've got some church fathers that back you up on that. So, good on you. But it still has some problems. And again, you may think I'm a weirdo. I said that, you know, the majority of scholars think this way. And I can show you all the commentaries if you want to. They're long. Um, but not, not just scholars, but also scholar preachers. The best educated megachurch preacher in the country is John Piper. Um, now, you'll hear words thrown around about preachers, doctor this, doctor that. Typically, that means it's either an honorary doctorate or they have what's called a doctor of ministry, which is a good degree, but it's what's called a professional degree, not an academic degree. So if you do a doctor of ministry, it's more like practical, like how do you grow a church? How do you do mar church marketing? How do you, it's that kind of thing, a opposed to a PhD, which is an academic thing. John Piper is an earned PhD from a university in Germany which is a big deal. It's very difficult to get into those universities. John Piper reads Greek better than I read English. He is a magnificent scholar. And if you go onto his website, Desiring God, you can punch in all this stuff and he'll explain it to you. So you're going to get mad at me that I don't believe in a rapture. You can go read John Piper's take on it because he's, he runs down why he doesn't believe in it either. The title of the article is, I only believe in one second coming. And that's what I believe is going on in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's talking about the second coming of Christ, not a rapture. That's what I believe. Now, I know this raises all kinds of questions. I get it. I can give you all kinds of stuff to read if you want to. If you don't, that's okay too. Like I said, you want to stick with your position, that's all right. I get it. I hear this all the time. How could Billy Graham have been wrong? Billy Graham himself said over and over again, I am not a Bible scholar. He was not. He was an evangelist. A great one. Absolutely one of the best who ever lived. But his master's degree was in anthropology. He, he, he did not claim to be able to read Greek or Hebrew and that kind of stuff. And he'd get up and talk about these prophecies and the rapture and all kind of stuff. And the scholars were around him going, Billy, I don't, I don't think that's right. So, that's the way it is. But here is the big deal. 
as I said, there are Christians out there, regardless of where you fall on this. And I, I, like I said, it doesn't really bother me. To me, this is, this is an issue that wherever you land, as long as you can back it up biblically, that's fine. Just don't argue and divide with people over it. It's not worth it. Don't divide the body of Christ over something that is debatable. It's just not worth it. And also, just don't get so caught up in this is that this is all you're about. I'm not going to name them. Like I said, there are TV shows and, and all sorts of stuff where all they talk about is the news coming out of Israel and this and that and all this other kind of stuff. And by the way, I hope, I hope, you know, the COVID thing finally blows over, we'll take another trip to Israel. Now, I want you to understand this, though. Regardless of where you come down on, like, end-time stuff and all this stuff, a lot of people always are looking to Israel, and they hold up Israel. Now, it's fun to go to Israel, and I am, by the way, not to get political, I am pro-Israel. If for no other reason, then it's the only democracy in the Middle East. And they're an ally. When you walk through Jerusalem, Sandy, you see there are flags everywhere. As long as Israel stands, America never stands alone. So I'm pro-Israel for that reason. I mean, they're, they're our friends. They got our back. But Jesus made it very, very clear. There are not two people of God. There's only one. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Israel does not get a pass. And remember, when Jesus said those words, who is he talking to? Jews in Israel. So, that is a sore point for me when I hear some people say that, well, but, but Israel are the people of God. Well, if they're Christians, they are. People who have faith in Jesus Christ are the people of God. And there's not two. And what will really shock you if you go to Israel when you talk to is the majority of them are atheists. Our tour guide was an atheist. Wasn't he? Yeah. he told me, he, he told all of us, he said, my Messiah is Israel. I ain't going to get you into heaven. Only faith in Jesus will do that. Nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. So I do want you to know that. What I really want you to know is this. This whole thing, and they call it, the fancy term for it is eschatology, the study of last things. Is it important? Sure. Is it the core of our faith? Not even close. Not even close. The core of our faith is that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, rose again, and will return and reign. That is the gospel. That is what we need to unify around. So if you've got at home a bunch of rapture charts and all that other kind of stuff, and you've you got all that kind of stuff going on. God bless you and keep you. But here's the deal. When Jesus returns, your judgment will not be based upon whether you got how Jesus returned. Your judgment will be based on whether or not you were a faithful servant of your king. Quit looking to the future. God will take care of it. He'll return when he wants to. He'll return how he wants to, but until then, we have work to do. We've got the gospel to spread. We've got his word to study. We've got people to care for. And we've got a God to worship. That's what we need to focus on. That. Loving each other. Showing the world true civility and kindness and love. Spreading the gospel. It's like I got the quote in there, I think. Fred Craddock said it. The late Dr. Fred Craddock said, so many Christians are so obsessed with the second coming of Christ, they never deal with the first. There's a reason why there's only one book of Revelation and four Gospels, folks. We get four Gospels about Jesus Christ. We get just a few chapters on the end times. Why do we have four Gospels about the life of Christ? It's as if God was saying, look, you knucklehead sinners, 
this is what you need to know first. You need to know about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even the apostles, this is what chaps me. Some of these preachers come out, I know! I know when Jesus will return. And when you confront these bozos and go, Jesus himself said no. And in fact, his apostles asked him, the apostles themselves go, Jesus, when's this gonna, is, this, is this the time? And he said, hey, for you to know. He won't even tell Peter. But some guy with a radio show in California knows. And when you tell him, wait a minute, Jesus himself said, no one knows the time. No one knows the hour. They'll go, yeah, but you can know the season. Huh? Do you know how many times this has happened? The early church was convinced that Jesus was going to return at any moment. In the year 1000, they were convinced that was the end of time. Jesus will return. When Martin Luther was running around Europe like a bull in a china shop in the 16th century, guess what all the preachers said? This is the end. In the 19th century in upstate New York, a bunch of people were so convinced they knew exactly when Jesus was returning, they sold everything they had, gave it away, put on white robes, and climbed up into trees waiting for Jesus. That was in the 1830s. I don't know if they're still there or not. You can know the season. No, you can't. What did Jesus say? I will come like a thief in the night. Thieves, what thief calls you up and says, hey, look, I'm not going to tell you the day or the hour. Sometime in the spring, I'm going to hit you. Could be March, could be April, could be May. Leave that garage unlocked, will you? Oh, give me a break. Give me a break. The Bible is very clear. You need to be prepared for Jesus to return at any moment. It could happen in a few seconds or it could happen in 10,000 years. I don't know. Only God knows. And he ain't sharing the info. But until that time happens. Now, I understand. Many of you believe, raised to believe in the rapture, all that kind of stuff. If it happens and we're all floating up together and I'm wrong, you can look over at me and go, huh? <laughs> I'll go, Sorry. I know that, you know, having studied the Bible for 20-odd years, to quote N.T. Wright, I know that probably at least 10% of what I believe is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 10% it is. So I may be wrong, but I don't think so. But whether there's a rapture or not, whether there's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ before the new heavens and the new earth or not, whether he is, as I believe, he'll just show up unexpectedly, and he will judge and reign and rule. Regardless, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, until that day, we have work to do. We have unchurched people to bring to hopefully come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have people to disciple. We've got poor and hurting people to care for. We've got people who sit among us as church family who have burdens that we need to help carry. We have worship to do. For some of you, by the way, the time when uh, Andrew or Ralph or Megan up here singing, that's not a musical backdrop for donuts. That's time to come in and worship God. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to do. Don't overly concern yourself with a thousand years. Focus instead on the years God has given you to serve him. Because they're all you're going to get. And if you just quit looking to prophecies and to the sky and look to the cross to see what Jesus did for you, to save you, because he loves you 
that much. Hopefully it will happen. But you won't worry about the second coming. You worry about your duty as a Christian here and now out of gratitude for your salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. We know that we can count that your son will return one day to judge, rule, and reign. And however you choose to do that, it will be perfect. We thank you for it. May your people, the church, not divide over what is debatable, but become devoted to what is central, your gospel, your good news, the life, death, and resurrection of your Son for us. May we wake up every day grateful for another opportunity to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for no heckling, no throwing. That was nice. I appreciate it. Um, God bless you. God go with you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you're going to have a great week. See you.